My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. This is America. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form. We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done. And here we are now. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. Never before in American history has there been an uprising like this. Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. Every week feels like a month at the moment. I can't be the only one who feels this. Maybe it's the heat. Maybe it's the continued flood of revelations from the January 6th committee. Or maybe if you're Donald Trump, it's the knowledge that the worst may be yet to come. What do you do in that situation? Today on Irishman in America, Marion McKeown guides us through all of the stories from the American front pages and a few you more than likely missed from the past seven days. I guess our first stop has to be the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the US Capitol, Marion. What a busy week. I, I mean, I don't know where do you begin because so there are three big ones that came out. This Oval Office meeting that it nearly ended up in punches, the testimony of this former true believer who joined the rampage, and the prediction that if Donald Trump runs again, no one will be safe. Do you have news for us on that front? Well, yeah, let's start with the, the not so good news on that front. Uh, it's There is now an emerging um, consensus based on, and it is the newspapers like the Washington Post, conversations with people who are very close to Trump, and they do have excellent sources, it has to be said, uh, who are saying that Trump is now moving towards uh, making his announcement that he's going to run for president again before the midterms. Now, they, it's been said that there's a 70-30 chance that he's going to announce in September, but some people think who are close to him think he might even announce before that. And even his advisors, like Senator Lindsey Graham, um, has come out and said, yes, that he does believe the sooner Trump announces, the better. Now, you can imagine that this is the last news that the Republicans need at the moment because the the January 6th committee has really, and I again I've praised their work before and the way in which they've done it, but they it's it's like watching the most tense political thriller ever. Every week there's a new chapter, it tightens the screw further, and there's this slow, inexorable build toward towards this finale where People are really beginning to realize, my God, the president of the United States did his damnedest to overthrow an election, not just on January 6th, but for weeks before that, from, from before the time the election votes were even counted, uh, that he was prepared to do anything to, to overturn the election and to remain in power, even sicking an armed coup on the Capitol building in a bid to stop the, the electoral college votes being counted. And, mm. you know, the, the more... It's not so much that um, the, this uh, 
these hearings, the public hearings, there have been seven of them so far, have blockbuster ratings, although they have gone between 10 and 20 million, which is an awful lot for America um, at the moment, you know, given all the distractions and the alternatives. It's, it's not like the Watergate hearings where you had NBC, ABC and uh, PBS, and they were all showing all, all the Watergate hearings all the time. So you didn't have a lot of choice, but people are tuning in. And more than that, the essence of these hearings, like the, the, the big takeaways are being distilled through media all over the country. They're dominating, of course, as you can imagine, the CNNs and the MSNBCs, uh, but they're also getting traction way outside of that. And people, I think, are really starting to take notice and they're starting to really see this picture coming together. It's it's like a mosaic almost or a jigsaw puzzle that there were a lot of bits missing, but now they're really down to the final few bits. And and the picture is horribly clear, it has to be said. Yeah, yeah. So as you can imagine, uh, Trump now saying what what Trump has done is is so Trump. Okay, so He's looking at all this and he's thinking about nobody but himself. And he's thinking, damn it, I need to announce soon because I got to get the, the spotlight back on me. I got to take it away from this committee and I've, I've got to get it back on me. And now, and also he's, we're seeing that as the committee hearings continue, and I suspect the two events are connected, that names like Ron DeSantis are becoming preferable to about a quarter or more more than a quarter, in fact, of, of Republican voters who are polled. Names like Ted Cruz, if you can believe it, about seven or eight percent say he'd vote for him. Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, like they're, these are all people who weren't even registering uh, a couple of weeks ago. And now they're, they're, they're share the vote, apart from DeSantis, who has a substantial share of, of the vote of the polled vote of, of uh, Republican voters. Um, is, they're growing. So it seems that as the, obviously as they grow, Trump's diminishes. So uh, still he's he's in the, the 40% range of Republicans who say they would definitely vote for him if he ran in 2024. But as I say, it's slipping. The momentum is shifting now. And so I think that's why Donald Trump wants to, to announce before um, the, the midterms, probably in September. And people close to him have said that, as I said, there would be a 70-30 chance that he will um, announce in September or before. And you've got guys like, you know, his lackeys and flunkies in the Senate, like Lindsey Graham saying, yeah, he needs to announce, you know, to get the mar steal the march on the donors, steal the march on the media coverage and show everyone Donald Trump is back. So, mm. you know, in, in the middle of all this, where the Department of Justice has also come out today and said that they're investigating uh, reports that Donald Trump has personally called a witness who has yet to testify and that they are personally looking, they are looking into, it, it, there's a criminal investigation into the attempts to submit fake electors on January 6th for, for um, Trump supporters in, in the swing states to basically say, we don't care that, that Biden won the majority here, so the electors who go to Washington should be Biden's, we're going to send Trump electors instead. So, and, and all these schemes to do that. So they're looking into stuff, not quickly enough for the um, the Democrats who are frustrated, I think, at the, the rate of um, investigation in the Department of Justice, but all of this as a picture. And, you know, as I say, what what's coming out, and we'll get to that in a moment, but the fact that in the middle of all this, Donald Trump is thinking now is a good time to announce, you, you just, you have to wonder really. Well, um, we've had this a few times, right? Since we started our show together two years ago, his tactic of don't look at that, 
look at this, look at this, exactly. look at this big flashy thing I have over here. Yeah. And it's such a juvenile but effective technique of it's taking work. the attention away. This week at the at the hearings, they were, as you say, really forensically trying to connect this tweet from 1.42 a.m. on the 19th of December 2020, where Trump encouraged supporters to come to Washington on January 6th, 2021, for what he said would be something wild. Can you talk to us a little bit about making that connection and why maybe this is what has drawn this announcement or these rumors of this announcement, because this really is pay dirt. Yeah. Now, I th- I think, and we, we've spoken before about a crazy meeting that took place in the Oval Office on December 18th, but we didn't actually know just how crazy it was until Tuesday when Pat Cipollone who is the former White House counsel. So Pat Cipollone is in the same role as John Dean was in Watergate, except unlike John Dean, Pat Cipollone appears to have done nothing wrong and appears to have been one of the handful of people within the Trump orbit who desperately tried to keep things on the rails and keep things within the letter of the law. Now, the story was pieced together by the committee and and you would laugh if you didn't cry, are you almost, you know, um, where Trump, you know, his his all of his legal challenges, there had been about 60 at that stage in, in various courtrooms around the country and it, which had gone also to appeal courts. Every one of them had been thrown out of court some of them had been laughed out by the judges. Other had been kicked out by really angry judges who said, who really chastised Giuliani and, and his merry band of lawyers for even attempting to come into the court and prosecute a case with no evidence. Uh, some of those judges and, and what they said was subsequently used to as reason to disbar Giuliani and Sidney Powell and, and John Eastman and various other people who were involved. So basically, uh, the night of uh, December 18th, as I say, it's not going well for Trump. He's lost all his legal challenges and he's getting more and more angry and exercised and the people around him are becoming more and more desperate to placate him and to stay in his inner circle. And at this stage, we have to say the people around him aren't the people from government. They're this rogue band which consists of Michael Flynn, the the, three-star general and Trump's former national security advisor, who had to be fired because he had very suspect connections with Russians. Um, He had taken money to speak in Russia and then he had lied about it to the FBI and he'd also misled people like Mike Pence within the government about his connections and and who he was speaking to in Russia. So he, he was kicked out after a couple of weeks as National Security Advisor. But like all these people. He, he never really went away. Trump kept him in his inner circle and, and and put a lot of pressure on Attorney General Bill Barr, who, who you know, was instrumental in, in having the case against him discontinued. And, and a, a lot of, of um, four prosecutors threatened to resign as a, re- a result of how Barr handled his criminal prosecution, but I'm digressing. So, in the White House, you have Donald Trump, you have Mike Flynn, who I've met several times, unhinged by any definition, by, by any definition. And then you have Sidney Powell, who I've also had the pleasure of being in a room at, at the infamous press conference where Rudy Giuliani's head literally looked like it was melting. Um, and and uh, and then bringing up the rear. So you, you have Cipollone, I beg your pardon, you have Powell, you have Giuliani, you have Flynn, and then 
you know, basically they're they're all around Trump and they're saying team, to him, team crazy. They were yeah, referred to, and with with really good reason. Um, so, but they're the people that Trump is listening to, and they're they're sne- the, a junior aide lets them into the White House and brings them to the Oval Office, and Trump was expecting them, didn't tell anyone, but the word got out, and um, Pat Cipollone, to paraphrase Sidney Powell, who was asked about this meeting, apparently who was upstairs, set, as she said, a new land speed record for getting down to the Oval Office and getting in there and finding out what the hell was going on. So it turned out that what was going on was uh, that Giuliani, Powell and Flynn were all telling Trump that the, the next thing he had to do was to seize all of the the ballot boxes, seize all of the voting machines, and basically bring them all in, take them away, and and say that that there had been massive fraud, and therefore the government was authorized to seize everything, and and which would kick things into a sort of a, a freeze frame, a holding pattern, which would presumably prevent the votes from being counted on January sixth. They also said that he was to, to announce um, a that he was appointing a new special counsel, which was going to be none other than Sidney Powell, the woman who believes that Hugo Chavez, dead for seven years, was involved in a conspiracy to rig vote machines, along with other people in Russia, China, not Russia, actually, sorry, everywhere else, but Germany, um, China, Italy, various other countries around the world, that they were all in on this scam to rig voting machines so that votes for Donald Trump were flipped to Joe Biden. So she's going to become, now, as I say, uh, uh, Sidney Powell is is seven shades of crazy. She really is. I, I mean, what just being in the same room as her is deeply disconcerting. But anyway, she's going to become the special counsel who's going to carry out this investigation. So, and, and, and Donald Trump has apparently already decided to name her that and to make the announcement. So Pat Cipollone arrives in all this and you know, he, he his testimony, of course, there had been huge anticipation about it uh, because he was a very reluctant witness. He had to be subpoenaed. And then after Cassidy Hutchinson's, the, the Meadows aide, after her testimony, which I think really shamed so many people, so many of her seniors in the White House who had literally run for cover, uh, I, it, it wasn't a good look for him basically to keep hiding. You know, he's back at his big law firm. He's breaking in the millions again every year. And it doesn't look good if you're a Washington power player in the legal sense, which he is, if you're hiding behind doors and trying to duck what really is your duty to say what happened in, in the leading up to and, and the day of possibly this coup that almost destroyed American democracy. So he, he explains in this sort of very terse, buttoned up way of his that, uh, he arrived into the Oval, office, the Oval Office and he wasn't happy to see who was in there. Well, I, that's an understatement. Uh, and he, he said they also I was a had, bit miffed. <laughs> he, he was. He to was, see he the was. local lunatics <laughs> surrounding <laughs> the president. Yeah. So, and he, he said that there was, the group showed a general disregard for backing what you actually say with facts. And, and that um, also um, he recalled telling Sidney Powell in no uncertain terms that a federal government, telling Trump that the federal government could seize election voting machines was a terrible idea for the country. Now, again, talk about an understatement. But so this meeting became very contentious. It also, according to, to other people who, what happened was it started in the Oval Office. They rode around there for 
basically several hours and then they went upstairs to the area above the Oval Office and at this point various other people had joined it. Eric Hirschman, another White House lawyer and and a bunch of other people and it basically turned into a free-for-all. Okay, so so you had, according to the various testimony, there was screaming. People, witnesses who were outside said they could hear screaming in the Oval Office and then upstairs they could hear people swearing and yelling and at one point apparently there was basically an invitation to fisticuffs between Giuliani and Eric Hirschman. Um, and Giuliani was calling basically all of the, the White House, all of the normies, as they were called, you know, the White House legal staffers, uh, wimps and pussies and saying they were scared of a fight. And and I think it was at that point that Hirschman said, you know, come over here and I'll show you who's scared of a fight. I mean, to think that this is all going on yeah. in the White House. And as I said, it's they're like the at each other and and it, it went on until after midnight. Now, um, and and so eventually Giuliani was escorted off the premises by Mark Meadows. And and Casey Hutchinson uh, sent a tweet which was shown um, in in which she to one of her colleagues in which she said, "The White House, the West Wing, is unhinged." And she wrote "unhinged" in big capital letters. And again, you would have to say that that was an understatement. But, you know, when you think what was going on there that night, that there's a meeting seriously discussing seizing voting machines, appointing a lunatic, and, and really, I don't use the word rightly, as a special counsel uh, to justify this, and, and basically just freezing democracy in its tracks. Uh, and then, not to mention then the free-for-all that, that um, emerged and you know people telling Sydney Powell she was nuts to her face by her by her own admission her testimony was almost quite you know detached you would think when when it, it was included and she said well she thought Trump should fire the whole lot of them basically like <laughs> so he, wow. he needed to fire everybody who was keeping the White House just about on the rails and and you know within the parameters of of some kind of legality and and that he needed to bring her and Flynn, who had been calling for martial law, by the way, um, in swing states and and uh, and Giuliani to, to basically, you know, take over the running of the country. So this this I think everybody had known that there was this crazy meeting, but I don't think until we saw Cipollone's testimony um, and, 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 and then all of the other evidence that, that the committee produced, as I say, even from Giuliani and, and Powell, who corroborated this version of offence uh, completely. Uh, and, and I think that we were all left just going, what, what the hell is going yeah. on in this country? Well, we said it last week, didn't we, that the Pat Cipollone testimony could be, uh, you know, the big moment in yeah. this. Do you think it lived up to the hype, in your opinion? Yeah, I think it did, because I, I don't think anybody was expecting um, this guy who is, you know, he's a very interesting guy in his own right. Okay, Pat Cipollone is 56 years of age. He is an arch-Catholic. His children all go to an Opus Dei school in, in um, Maryland. He has 10 children, by the way. Uh, the, the one Of the ones who have left school, one works for Laura Ingram on Fox News as a booker and producer. Uh, the other two are, are law students at the moment. But he comes from this completely, as I say, far right wing, deeply conservative Catholic family. And he has, you know, part of that circle are guys like Brett Kavanaugh and Bill Barr, and they all work for the same law firm 
Kirkland Ellis, which is the most powerful law firm in the world, literally. It was the first law firm in the world to bring in revenues of more than $4 billion in a single what? year. And la oh, last shit. year, even with COVID, its 2020 figures were 4.8 billion. So when other businesses were going to the wall, when other law firms were looking for bailouts, it increased its takings by 20%. Oh, now, Bill Barr is a senior partner there. So was Ken Starr. Uh, as I say, so was Brett Kavanagh, so was Cipollone. Cipollone did leave to set up his own law firm with, with other people, and that's doing very nicely as well. Thank you. Um, and uh, But these are the people that he worked with. Now, I'm going to digress, Charlotte, because I think this is a really interesting um, observation, and I'm just throwing it out here as yeah, an observation. Absolutely. Okay. So we've spoken before about um, most of the work of Kirtland Dallas. It was the big work, like they defended BP and oil spill cases, they defended big tobacco, they defended big pharma. Like this was, and you know, they had lobbyists and, and advisors always in Republican White Houses. And it was kind of, their, their offices, these huge offices in Washington are literally a five minute walk from the White House. And Every Republican government basically uses them as a recruiting agency, you know, for their legal departments. Like they've always, um, you know, gone on secondment to Republican White Houses, going back to Reagan and Bush. So anyway, two other people who who worked in in um, for Kirkland Dallas were Trump's um, Labor Secretary and um, Alec, Alex Acosta, and also his Health Secretary Hank Azar, uh, both of whom were forced to resign. Now let's hone in on why um, Alex Acosta resigned. Alex Acosta, who Trump made his labor secretary, was forced to resign in 2019 when it emerged after exhaustive digging by the, um, newspapers in Florida and one journalist in particular that he, as the US Attorney General for Southern Florida, had pushed a sweetheart deal for Jeffrey Epstein. Now. He had worked for Kirkland Ellis. So did Epstein's lawyer work for Kirkland Ellis. He was another Kirkland Ellis partner. And Bill Barr, another high-ranking Kirkland Ellis person, who, as I've mentioned before, it was Bill Barr's father who initially hired Epstein to work as a maths and physics teacher in this hugely prestigious and academic school called the Dalton School in New York, a private school, even though Epstein was a college dropout and had no connections mm -hmm. and was basically yeah. the son of a gardener from Brooklyn. So now the, one of the only really criminal cases I could find that they were involved in was, as I said, the, the Epstein case where the lawyer representing Epstein was still working in the firm and the um, US Attorney General who, who basically worked with the lawyer to deliver this sweetheart deal for Epstein and broke the law by not telling the victims, as was required by law, um, about the deal on, until it was basically done and dusted. So, as I say, you have uh, just Kirkland Dells making a rare foray into, into the criminal world, certainly into the grubby world of pedophilia and and you know pedophilia like and and you know that that sort of like sex trafficking of young girls and and what was going on there. So, um, and I just find it found it so interesting that this is really an indication to me of how power works, that you have a lawyer from a powerful firm representing Epstein, who also knows and is a former colleague of the US Attorney General who's pushing for a sweetheart deal for Epstein. And then, as I say, in the background, you have Barr, who also has 
through his family, through his father, these connections to Epstein. And, and you know, as I say, they're, they're, these are the things that move under the surface that we're very rarely aware of. And, you know, and then you, you see how they can come together. Now, I'm not suggesting, well, uh, you know, Acosta had to resign. So clearly he did do something wrong. He broke the law, as I said, in keeping this deal from Epstein's victims and giving them no say in it. But, you know, it, to me, it's, it's, it's quite a concerning connection. But we're going to go back to Kirkland Dallas anyway. And as I say, these these are all people who have worked in Republican White Houses. Trump had half a dozen of them on, on his payroll at one point. So um, Cipollone got it, became White House counsel through his connection with Bill Barr, who, of course, as I said, was his, his fellow colleague in, in that law firm. He was recommended and he came with that recommendation. Now, he was a true believer like Barr, he believed in basically expanding the power of the executive office of, of the president um, and, and, you know, batting back the powers of the legislature and, and really making sure that a president pretty well ran the country as, as he saw fit. So he defended Trump in the first impeachment hearing uh, when, when he was um, accused of strong arming uh, Zelensky, the the, the um, Ukrainian president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, who was then newly elected and threatening to withhold $400 million in aid if he didn't dig up dirt on Joe Biden and his son Hunter. So that led to the first impeachment. And Cipollone had just come on board and he delivered this really robust defense. But in his defense, he said, if you... Um, impeach Trump, you're basically depriving the American people of their right to vote as they choose in 2020. And he went on at length how there was nothing worse than depriving American people of their sacred right to vote. And what Democrats were effectively trying to do was overturn the results of the 2020 election before it even happened. So, wow. you know, you've just got irony upon irony here. Yeah. So, so basically... To me, you know, people are saying, oh, it's great, he, he testified. Well, if they were his beliefs, if he felt that strongly about the democratic rights of Americans to vote, what was he doing hiding behind mm. the door until he got this subpoena in the first place? Completely. It's Mike Pence all over again. Yeah, oh, exactly. Mike Pence and is a hero. Yeah. yeah. Well, you could have looked and said something earlier. And he didn't say nothing out of lethargy or apathy or, ah, but should they have all the information they need already? You know, he deliberately withheld this information, which this devastating information that he provided um, from the January 6th committee about, as I said, this huge fight about, you know, there, there was plenty of other information that he provided as well, which really um, corroborated everything that had been said by other witnesses. He never contradicted a single word that Cassidy Hutchins said, um, you know, ab about him running down to Mark Meadows and saying, there's going to be blood on your hands if, if you don't stop what's going on on Capitol Hill. You know, he said they're threatening to kill the president, do something. And, uh, and when Mark Meadows didn't seem that bothered, um, he, that was when he said, there's going to be blood in your hands. He was the guy who phoned Cassidy Hutchinson on the morning of um, January 6th and said, don't let Trump go to the Capitol. Don't let Trump go to the Capitol. If he does, we'll be charged with every crime imaginable, so, which shows that he knew there mm. was a plot in place for Trump 
Alla Mussolini a hundred years ago to storm the capital with his mob and basically overturn the election results. So he knew all this was going to happen. And, you know, yet he let Castry Hutchinson be thrown out there to dry, basically just hung out there and, you know, have her credibility attacked and called a liar and a grudge holder and all these other things when he knew that everything she had told the committee was true. So that to me is is despicable. And the fact that he then had to be subpoenaed to even get him to come before the committee and say what he yeah, said. And his testimony was cautious. You know, he several times he he was cooperative, but he did several times um invoke, you know, executive privilege to to avoid answering questions. Yeah, so, which is what we wondered about last week, uh, yeah. whether that would happen. Uh, that's that's interesting. I wanted to ask you before we go to our break, uh, Jason Van Tatenhove is the probably the most photographed man this week at the hearings. What did you make of this former Oath Keeper spokesman? You know, I think that he provided some interesting testimony, but I don't know how relevant it is. Okay, he put people in certain places and he gave us an insider's guide to how the the, the Oath Keepers works. But he basically was their press officer at, at a point and he goes back to the standoff at the Bundy Ranch in Nevada to explain their origins and all that. And it's very interesting, but he was not working for the Oath Keepers at, at the point when, when all this was going on and going down. He had long since not been working as their press agent. And I think he was somebody who realized that there was a lot of Kool-Aid being drunk, that it was very, very dangerous and that he really didn't want to be a part of it anymore. So he did basically what what the White House, what the January 6th committee was trying to do was to make a direct link between these groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and Donald Trump himself. Now, they came pretty damn close to it, but I I wouldn't say that they definitively established that link. But the circumstantial evidence around it is overwhelming, as is. And just to get back to what you asked, Charlotte, and, and um, the, the night of after that um, Oval Office meeting, Trump went up to bed and at around two o'clock in the morning, um, he sent, that was the point at which he sent a tweet to millions of his followers, which read, big protest in DC on January 6th, be there, will be wild. Okay. And this refrain was taken up by guys like Steve Bannon, Roger Stone, even, um, oh my God, his name has just Alex, Alex Jones, the, the, mm -hmm broadcaster and writer and conspirator who said it's going to be like Paul Revere in 7076. Bannon said all hell is going to break loose. The day before, um, he went on, did his podcast and said all hell is going to break loose in Washington tomorrow. So, you know, you put all that together and you see that there clearly was, there were parallel plans. There was a rally being planned at the Ellipse, which was going to be Trump supporters and believers, guys like Stephen Ayers, okay, who initially was just a diehard Trump supporter, but who didn't really have an intention of, you know, resorting to violence or, or overturning any election. And what it seems happened with him, he testified as well, pretty tragic guy, like a, a local guy, typical of Trump supporters, working class guy, who was a, a sort of a foreman in a cabinet making factory in Ohio. 
um, had a wife and family, regarded himself as a real family man, but went on the internet and went down all these rabbit holes about Trump, became a diehard supporter. And when Trump, when the rally was announced at the Ellipse on January 6th, he thought he's going to go there because he absolutely believed the election had been stolen and he wanted to voice his protest and, and make his feelings felt along with tens of thousands of other Trump supporters who believed the same thing. So he went to the, the ellipse and then he had no intention of going to the Capitol, but when Trump basically sicked the crowd on the Capitol, he went down there, he went into the Capitol, took a few selfies, didn't do anything violent um, and and then left. He, he was of course spotted on footage, he was um, investigated, charged and basically pleaded guilty. So he was a guy who spoke and, and you could see how much how shocked he was by the turn of events. And, and, you know, he was not somebody who would have taken part in a coup, who would have taken part in violence, but he's one of the guys who got swept along by the tide, who got swept along. And when Trump told him to go to the Capitol, he went and he testified that that was why he was there, because Trump had told him to do so and because he believed Trump would be there too. Now, you might say what kind of, you know, a moron would do that. But the truth is I've met so many guys like Stephen Ayres and they're basically fundamental, decent, honest guys. They're family guys, they're unskilled workers, a lot of them. And they fell for Trump hook, line and sinker. And they fell for his charisma. They fell for his shtick. They fell for the snake oil that he was offering. And they really became devoted followers in the belief that Trump understood them. He understood their lives. He understood their struggle. Uh, and as I say, you know, so he became a true believer and you could see the the distress as he gave his testimony. And after he gave his testimony, he went over to four of the Capitol Police who had been severely injured on the day by the, the protesters who were breaking into the Capitol and, uh, you know, in their attempts to hold them back. And he apologized to every one of them. Now, uh, you know, I the the um they confirmed that he had apologized to them. We saw him do so on camera, and uh, but I I'm not sure at this stage what that apology is worth. But from him, it was undoubtedly sincere. So there is a bigger tragedy here of just ordinary people. As a result of of being arrested and charged, um, he lost his job. Uh, and he had to sell his home and he and his wife are now trying to keep his family together and they're really struggling. And of course, there's no help coming from, you know, Trump or any of the Trump organizations and none of the Trump, the quarter of a billion dollars that Trump raised on the back of his stop the steal lie is going to help any of these people. So I think it's fair to say that they really do feel like they've been conned and, and you know, are a bit heartbroken about it rather than angry. Well, we're going to head over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad to continue this discussion with Marion. And trust me, there's so much more to hear over there, including Joe Biden's visit to the Middle East, uh, sans handshakes, uh, the most eerie and unnerving New York City explainer video you can ever hope to hear. Uh, the Ohio Attorney General, Dave Yost, will discuss that, the actual repercussions of Roe v. Wade being overturned in the second half of my discussion with Marion McKeown. You don't want to miss it. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad to hear it all. Ready? You have the cameras rolling? This is America. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You encouraged 
espionage against our people. You condemn any interference by Russia in the American election. By Russia or anybody else. Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our democracy.